1: Welcome to this week's episode of the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. I'm here in the studio with Beth Gilio, Senior Vice President of Human Resources at 8451. Some of you are going, what is 8451? 8451 is a data science and customer experience organization wholly owned by the Kroger Company. They represent over 60 million households, and we are very excited to have their head of human resources Culture and people here with us today. Thank you so much, Beth.
0: Yeah, no, thanks, Mike. Appreciate being here.
1: So Beth one of the topics that we cover quite a bit with Centennial and the Talent Magnet Institute is this thing called strategy talent strategy aligning to business strategy and we all have read articles and books and people speaking at keynotes about strategic HR and I'd love to get into that discussion with you today and how do you frame up strategic HR having been in several of the world's largest organizations and being an executive leader in this space who is viewed In the community as a very strategy-focused human resource professional and Mm -hmm. a business executive.
0: Well, thank you for the compliment. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm very humbled by that compliment. Uh, Let me give you a little context, I think, for where I come from when I say strategic HR, maybe define it a little bit and give you a little background about me and kind of how I got into HR. So as a New hire, many years ago, I actually started with Deloitte Consulting. So I started my practitioner life as a consultant. I learned about process re-engineering. I learned about change management. And it was all about enabling business strategy through the consulting work that we were doing. So I did that for more than 10 years, got my master's in business from Duke, and then ended up at j in a very specialized function of change management. So I kind of built credentials in how to drive change by enabling people through leadership, training, change management, support, et cetera. But it was always in the context of driving strategy into the business. So I actually didn't join HR until roughly about 10 years ago. So at J&J, I migrated through lots of different functions. I had a role in R&D. I had a role in supply chain. I had a role in a commercial business development role. And in all of those, it was about helping the business execute their strategy through enabling change. So within that context, I transitioned into HR. So I came with a business-driven mindset, enabling change from the get-go of my career. So when I landed in HR, it was kind of ironic because my undergrad's actually in HR, but it took me many years to get there. And some of that was watching that HR wasn't at the table all the time. People weren't seen as... Business partners, they were seen as HR partners. And so a lot of my career is about being a business partner first, HR partner second. So I believe that it's really important for an HR leader to understand the business and do everything that they can to enable the business through HR. So when I think about HR and strategic HR, there are kind of three things I think about. The first, which I alluded to a minute ago, is I'm a business leader, I happen to lead the function of HR, but I'm a business leader. So that means to be a strong strategic HR partner, you need to understand the business strategy. You need to understand the competitive environment that they're operating in, not just from a talent perspective, but from a business context. What's the business trying to achieve? What's its future look like? Then take that back into a talent mindset to say, okay, given that, whatever that is, we want to grow by 10%. We want to enter a new market. What's the talent enabling strategies that go with that? So, HR by definition should be a strategic enabler to the company, not just a function in and of itself. So, that's the first point. The second is as an HR person, I believe you need to be smart about HR. So, the first thing I did with my team at 8451 was assess where do they learn? about HR and what's cutting-edge thinking. We immediately said we either need to be person-driven or invest in some other support structure to keep my folks current. We read articles all the time. We discuss them. We go to conferences. Those are often places where HR teams don't invest. But my expectation is to be a strategic HR partner, you must bring cutting-edge thinking in HR to the business, right? So that's the second part. And then the last part is, and this may be my consulting bias, thinking through what's the outcome you're trying to drive. I think at times HR professionals can get into tactics. We need this program, or we need this recruit, or we need this comp solve. But I always ask, what's the business outcome? That we're trying to drive followed by what's the talent outcome we're trying to drive so if you're ever in a room with me we'll go for a couple minutes and i'm like what outcome are you trying to drive mm-hmm. so that I can then contextualize it? So those three things are really important. You have to be business-minded first, so understand the strategy. Second part is a thought leader in the HR talent space. Mm-hmm. And then the last part is be really clear about what your strategic outcome is because the other work you can then prioritize against that. Absolutely. So that's a little bit about like my definition of what strategic HR means to me and why I think the way that I think. That's very helpful.
1: When you are engaged with your team or other professionals who happen to be leading the HR function, how do you help them make that turn if they haven't already, right? So there's a lot of leaders who are in the tactics or are in a, quote unquote, small organization that is usually blamed as an excuse Mm -hmm. of why I can't be strategic because I'm executing every day. What do you tell to those leaders that kind of create an excuse, to be honest, about why they can't be more strategic and focus on the business?
0: So first, I would say that's very real. I mean, I'm the first person who says, oh, well, I had my agenda for today, and an employee relations situation hit, and you're now focused on the here and the now. So the struggle of the strategic and the day-to-day is very real. Mm-hmm. And ironically, when I first transitioned into HR, I had a very good mentor, and she mentioned, she said, your biggest challenge is going to go from a project mentality to a day-to-day mentality. And so for me, the way I coach and help people think about it is, first, I still go back to what outcome are you trying to drive? I think HR professionals can get stuck in a lot of busy work and not step back from what are you trying to achieve and how do you then stack, break what limited time you have to actually put against it. The other is building capacity to do that. So when I think about 8451 and I made a commitment to say we will be cutting edge HR professionals, part of that was to say, how does my team need to change? What solutions do I need to give them? And then what do I need to say to the business that says, if you want us to be more strategic, this needs to be automated. This needs to be owned by the manager. This is something we want to play in that we haven't played in before. Mm-hmm. So that's the other part of it probably is stepping back and saying, where aren't you playing that you want to play and then what do you have to change about your team or the work that you're doing so that you can actually be at the table uh, when you need to be.
1: I think that's a great example even for the president or CEO who's listening to this episode saying, I want my HR organization to be at the business table and to help me achieve our business goals and be more strategic that they need to put themselves in the space of You might have the right strategic leader, but have them working on the wrong things because the lack of team or lack of talent that you have allowing them to have on the team. There's not one HR executive I've ever met doing the 17 years that have said our team's just fine the way it is. (laughs) Everybody has 136 plates spinning. And there's always a lot of capacity that they know they want to get to these things, but they struggle getting to them because of everything that they're spending. So to those business owners that are listening, think about that. And the opportunity you might have to look at your budget a little differently to elevate your organization, looking at it as an investment for the future and for your business goals being more quickly achieved is we all know that talent and leadership And culture are our greatest opportunities to enhance our businesses. So start investing in that. Well,
0: and I might build on like one specific example that I saw that might be relevant to some of your listeners. So whether it's five years ago or five years from now, engagement, right, is that buzzword of how do you make sure that your employees are meaningfully engaged? And one of the things that I think happens is there's this appetite for data, so companies, whether they do it annually, which a lot of companies still do, or they do it quarterly, they'll have the survey that goes around engagement. And it's 85 questions, right? And then they're trying to mine the 85 questions, as opposed to looking at what are we trying to accomplish in the next one to two years? And as you look at those different dimensions that you're measuring, what are the most important? So I led a startup within J&J, and frequently our question was... Are we going to be here next year? So when you look at data that would say people are unhappy about compensation, well, that's an important thing to solve. But right now it's whether or not we get the FDA approval or it's about whether or not we get capital financing from the company for another year of survival. So we would then stack rank all those different questions and all those different categories and say, what's the one area we have to get right. And so for us, it would be people need to understand and connect to the mission of the organization because we need their whole heart in this because it's not going to be an easy ride. And I just think HR organizations as well as companies get marred in, the well, let's look at which questions are the lowest and let's improve those. Let's look at the best ones and just do that. And those are great strategies, but put them in the context of what's your business environment today And what's the one or two things that if you invest there, you can be successful as opposed to trying to address all the ills Mm -hmm. and recognize some of them may never change. So really tying that strategy to the work so that you can actually minimize how much you're working on because if you're working on improving 16 questions – that's a lot of work Absolutely. that might not actually drive value at the yeah. end of the day.
1: From the discussion around, again, the listener who might be in the HR executive position or HR leadership position who doesn't feel supported by the business, how do they break through the barrier to show their value and to demonstrate that value and to begin bringing that business minded conversation to the table because there's a distinct barrier there for a lot of organizations any feedback there
0: yeah i mean i think there's a couple elements when i think about it as an hr professional is stepping back and saying what's the pain point in hr for the business right and you can't help the business until you address whatever the gap mm-hmm. is on your site. So I would start there. Let's assume for a minute maybe that's not the gap, that it's just you haven't been at the table, it's not a first thought for your business, or they don't see you that way. I would say you have to reset the expectation for the HR function with those leaders. So it might start with, let's say you're in a growth business, and HR is not at the table. Finance makes all the decisions, or marketing makes all the decisions. How do you enable them to think about how you can help? So maybe you're bringing – you know you're going to enter a new market as part of your growth. Do the research. Bring the expertise that says, hey, not sure if you knew this, but in this market, if you want this kind of talent, this is what we're looking for. And this is what it's going to take to get there. And we've benchmarked, you know, whatever that is. So I frequently come with, you want to play in this space, this is what you need to know. Mm. And I'm not afraid to enter mean, right? So we're working on a area of the business that's new and sales compensation keeps coming up. I'm not sure whether we need sales comp or not, but I went and found my partner that I've worked with in sales comp to bring a different perspective. And just bringing that in and having that strategic point of view that says, I don't know whether this is the right answer or not, but here's some experts that can help us think through that puts me in a different playing position at the table by bringing the outside in. So I think you got to look at it as what problem you're trying to solve and then who can you bring to the table, be it yourself or somebody else or data that gets you in on that conversation. And I think you build from there. So you got to start small, get your wins. And then figure out where you want to branch from there. But every company has their pain point, whether it be turnover, whether it be talent pipeline, whether it be access to a new market. How do you then say, well, what's the talent implications of that? And then bring that to Mm. the table, even if they don't ask for it. Mm. Do the work because that's what gets you the, you know, opportunity to sit at the table
1: the next time. Yeah, it's interesting for us, again, being in the executive search and talent strategy space that you know there's a lot of excitement around the topic of talent strategy and you know always the business strategy leads the talent and the hr and the people and the culture has to support that because the greatest challenge for every organization today for most organizations today is talent Right. Right. And optimizing that talent and engaging that talent and attracting the right talent and the workforce pipeline talks around, you know, again, that it's always been challenging to find the right people that hasn't changed. But we're bringing different spotlight to it. Some of the spotlight is pointing fingers at others. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one thing that 8451 has done so well is. Being the talent magnet to go out and create your own solutions to create the own opportunities and really pull the best talent in the world into the organization. Can you share a little bit about any pivots you've been a part of in terms of leadership to really help make it the proactive approach, developing our own solutions to go out and win the right talent for the future?
0: Yeah. What I can say is I've been at 8451 a little over two and a half years. So what I would say is some of the magnetism of 8451 was done long before I got there. And the investment in culture has been huge. right? So I don't want to underestimate what I'm doing now from what was already there. When you have a great foundation to build from, great talent, great culture, innovative mindset, it becomes more natural to Identify and attract and retain talent. I would also say they've done exceedingly well in their recruiting space. So they had kind of a mentality of we only hire those that we think are rock salad. So, and I've heard this in small organizations, and this is probably a piece of wisdom as well for organizations that are smaller. If you are an organization, that, let's say 500 people, every hire matters, mm-hmm. right? And it's not to say that in a thousand-person organization it doesn't. It's just you can be more incorrect in a 1,000-person organization than you can in a 500-person organization. So that was advice I got long time when I was running the startup. Don't screw up your hires. Wait for them, which I think is a tension, a healthy tension on hiring of like waiting for the best versus making the call now because you have a pain now. But in smaller organizations, you definitely want to do that. So I would say the culture and the recruiting stuff was rock solid when I got there. I think where we started to evolve were things like we were a startup in some ways from an HR perspective, so how do you build the infrastructure? So I have a mindset of process improvement and re-engineering, so it was about how do you use technology to enable. I also am a creative risk taker, so we went to lots of conferences and we said, well, what are some things that we could do that would really start to put us on cutting edge? And it was because we were doing the outside in, Right. Those ideas didn't come from us sitting around a room and saying, what should we do? That came from going to conferences. So, for example, we knew we had an L&D gap, you know, our learning and development gap from a almost like a – Old school versus new school thinking, right? People don't learn the way they used to learn. So what was going to be this dramatic transformation from a learning platform perspective? So we started looking outside, and we got exposure to a company called PathGather, which is now owned by Degreed. But it was all about an aggregated solution to say people learn through lots of different methods. How do you provide all these different solutions? So not a traditional LMS, which is what we were looking at, but looking at how do people learn differently, And so I just said, you know, on a dime, let's go pilot it. Let's see how this fits, Mm -hmm. right? So I think some of what 8451 allows us to do is we call it test and learn, right? So let's pilot this thing. Let's get some folks around it and see what happens. And what it's been able to do is it now provides just a totally different learning experience. So we hire a lot of millennials. We've got Gen Z, (laughs) you know, we've got Gen Y, all that kind of stuff in the generationals. But they wanna go search on the internet. Well, what this does is it aggregates all these different learning platforms, proprietary and non-proprietary, so you can access it in an instant. And that gave us a way to give our stuff credibility. But then they build on it. So it's a blogging platform. It's a community platform. So all the things that this generation wants is right there at their fingertips as opposed to me continuing to build, let's say, classroom training. We do that too, Mm -hmm. but in a very different way. Mm -hmm. So I think there's openness at 8451 to look at things differently. And then we said, we're going to bring cutting edge thinking. I mean, that is one of my mantras, cutting edge thinking to this business. Brainwaves was that. We're one of the few in the country who are doing it, and now we're doing it really well, that gives us a platform to talk about. Same thing with things like diversity and inclusion. We said, how are we going to be fundamentally different than everybody who's tried this before? Because a lot of people have tried, and they're still not there. So I think just this insatiable appetite to say, there's a better way. How do we find that better way and then test and learn and try it? And again, culturally, that fits with 8451. That's not, you know, Mm -hmm typical of every company. But if you can find those pockets of people willing to try new stuff, that becomes a great way to mm-hmm. bring HR strategy in Absolutely. that's more creative. So I think those are the advancements that we've been kind of making in that's the last terrific. two years. That's And you know,
1: every organization wants to be great. Every leader wants to lead well. I think some of the magnetism, as you referenced, is the investment in culture. These are things I just heard. Investment in culture, an innovative mindset, the employee engagement that goes beyond just what most people think of keeping people engaged at work, it really engages the whole life for your employees and the experiences they have. Waiting for the best talent and being proactive to get the right pipeline to drive the best talent, being a risk taker and being willing to allow creativity inside of an organization Mm -hmm. are all key aspects of the effort of becoming a talent magnet, which you all have done so well. And and the organization, to your point, the history of the organization, that's the brand, that that's when you think of the organization as a whole for the many, you know, for the years that it's been in existence, that's what you think of. And that doesn't just happen. That takes work, that takes effort by the leadership and by the talent that came before you and those that will be thereafter, you know, that it takes that type of, mentality to really attract the right people and maintain this for so long.
0: And to Um, your point, I mean, I think part of what HR professionals have to be comfortable with is that they are, back to your point from earlier, enablers. We don't own the culture. And I think at times people look to the HR organization, Mm -hmm. if the culture is broken, fix it. And I'm a firm believer of the culture is the culture. Mm -hmm. So you need leaders who own the culture, drive the culture. We can help with diagnostics. We can help with, you know, defining the delta of where we are versus where we want to be. But the HR organization is not going to change the culture. So that's probably my history with driving change. I've got all the methodologies in my head, right, of knowing you need leaders to lead change. The HR team can help define it and help manage it. But at the end of the day, the leaders lead it. And so that's a big mentality of whether you're trying something new or trying to be innovative or trying to make sure the culture fits with what you want to go in the future. That was all work that the leaders led. And the leaders continue to lead. And so when they come to me and say, well, you know, how can you help with a culture? I'm like, I can help you monitor it. Mm-hmm. And I can help you shape where you want to go. But I don't own it. Right. And neither does my team. Yeah. <laughs> so so how do you continue to bridge whether that's diversity and inclusion, whether that's culture? I mean, all of that is business driven. And that's why I want to be at the table for the business conversation. So I get involved in saying, well, I don't think we should go to that market. And here's why. And it's not just a talent conversation. I'm a business leader and I think that gives me credibility to also then say, so when we talk about talent strategies, it's not a HR strategy. It's a business strategy. Yeah.
1: yeah. And again, I for those listening, this, hopefully you repeat and re-listen over and over to this one it, to help you coach you up on how to have this discussion internally. Because there are organizations that believe that HR owns recruitment, HR owns culture, HR owns engagement, and honestly, I guess to some, it brings a sense of relief that I don't have to do any of them well, right? (laughs) And, you know, to the point that we share a lot with the Talent Magnet Institute, that there's no place to really go to learn how to be a great hiring manager, right? How do I support the organization? And that's something that we're hoping to do with these dialogues to say, oh, you know what? I never thought of that. I thought HR had the sole responsibility for talent acquisition. I didn't realize that, Well, I should take ownership myself. And again, it makes sense to leaders that have been in that space, but there are some who that's, no, that's not my, that's not what I'm responsible for. Well, aren't you the one who needs to hire and are responsible for growing the business? So hopefully there's some great insights here that people can go back and say, I'm getting coached up by Beth and by that particular podcast episode to really walk into my executive team next conversation and sound a little different and get myself out of the crosshairs and start sharing the responsibility of elevating our organization. You referenced diversity and inclusion. And you're trying to do things different that no one's done before. Could we unpack that mm-hmm. a little bit and dive into where the uniqueness and the passion for it and the intention and the desire in this space? Could we discuss that a little bit?
0: Sure. So, There was a little bit of a runway when I got there. And when I joined 8451, there were some dialogues around diversity and inclusion. So it wasn't something that I created. There was already some interest in it. And what's unique about 8451 is because it's a data and science company and a customer experience company, everything is rooted in what's the why behind why people behave a certain way. And so... We came at it from a scientific approach. So again, part of my change management wiring is sometimes it's not actually driving buy-in to the topic. It's how you introduce it. So if I had introduced DNI purely from a it's the right thing to do, I might have gotten a lot of buy-in, right? Because that argument's true. I could probably even make an argument on innovation. Well, we're an innovative company. To drive innovation, you have to have a highly diverse and inclusive culture. What I picked up on really quickly is data integrity and insight drives 8451. So if I could show with science the natural biases that affect the way you look at data, the way you interpret data, the way you deliver an insight is biased Oh, wait a minute. That's my baby, right, as a leadership team. I don't want to have bias in our data. What do you mean we might not have the best insights in the world? So I went after something that was very specific to the business's DNA to build the case for DNI. And everybody got it because we want to be the best science folks in the country, and we only want to give the best advice. So if we're somehow hindered because we're not as diverse and inclusive as we could be, we're going to fix that. And, oh, yeah, the innovation and everything comes with it. So sometimes it's not just about having the business case. So it's about putting in the context of the business Mm -hmm. and what they're trying to do. So we got some buy-in to that. And then we went where we did well. We invested in the leadership team. So we spent time understanding unconscious bias. We went through – you know, all of the research from Harvard and why that's true, and always from a scientific perspective because I deal with lots of analytical and scientific people, right? So I took the message and made sure I had somebody credible talking through that. So we get the leadership team on board, and we were partnering with a third party who's known in this space. So that's the other thing is I will bring highly credible resources to the table. And then we said, all right, well, if that's our why and this is what we want to do, what's best in class? And so again, third party, I don't want to do what's failed. I want to do what is best in class. And so we set up an inclusion council. And again, like thinking through, and we actually called it the insightful inclusion council. So building on we want the best insights, let's not just put a d committee together. Let's go after what we're trying to do, which is we want our insights to be inclusive. And again, got advice on how to structure that, which I don't know that I naturally would have thought of. But um, the encouragement was put a leadership team in place that represents your desired future state. So if you want ethnic diversity, if you want age diversity, if you want socioeconomic diversity, whatever those things are, you want geographic diversity, let's build the team that way and really get after it. And so we've been working with that team for over a year and a half, almost two years, to then devise what's the strategy, where do we want to be, what are the gaps, how do we go after that. But it's being led by this group of people that then co-partner with the leadership team of the company to say how do we drive results. My passion for it, to be honest, I don't know that I knew I had the passion that I had until this work started. So I've been in and out of the DNI space as an HR professional and as a non-HR professional for years, I sat on Johnson and Johnson's African American Leadership Council for a while. Probably one of my best experiences in my career to really get myself out of my own comfort zone and figure out what the challenges were and how to navigate being different um, where I was. The minority in everything that we did and how I could help professionally. And then I led some cross ARG, ERG work at J and J before I transitioned in this role. So it was more of probably a combination of things. But what I realized is if I have the opportunity to make a difference, and this is a space where I think we can be different and try new things, we're gonna do it. And you know, it's everything from the science to we want to figure out how to get rid of algorithm bias. Because again, if that exists. Man, could 8451 lead that charge? And I got passion behind it, and the business leaders are passionate about it. And what about what's held companies back? They're afraid of it. They're afraid of the conversation. Where I look at best in class companies, they put the hard stuff on the table. So I said, How do we create an environment where we'll put the hard stuff on the table? We're not perfect. But I have grassroots stuff that's popping up. We have, just within the last six months, a group has decided to build Men Advocating for Real Change, or MARC. I've sent some folks to Catalyst's training around MARC, and that spurred people saying, let's build something. And so my role on that is, tell me what you need. How can I help? As opposed to being, what does it mean to have a men's group? Mm-hmm. A men's group, really? It's like, yeah, I want a men's group. If they're going to help me drive... Gender and ethnic inclusivity in this company? Absolutely. So it's things like that where people kind of, what about a women of color group? Okay, go. How can I help you? So I think it's that willingness to kind of lean in and recognize that I'm going to step in stuff, but let's try it because we're at least progressing. We're not holding back. Mm-hmm. So that's where a little bit of the passion comes from and a little it's bit wonderful. of the unique approach we're trying. And there's a lot of grassroots, like we are not trying to control everything in this space, and it's risky. But the generation that's in our workforce and the expectations are just so high in this space, we can't afford not to tackle it.
1: Yeah. It has been a theme that has run throughout our podcast episodes. You know, episode three, we had Shaquille Ahmed, the president of the Islamic Center, who's been a longtime dear friend of our family and Centennial. There's a quote that we share when people want to create discord, they only focus on differences. And then building upon that, Dr. Janet Reed, who serves on our board, And episode 19 talks about where people get stuck is diversity and inclusion only seeing differences. And we need to focus on our similarities, right? And that if diversity is the noun, inclusion is the verb because it's action it's taking action. And we've talked a lot about in various episodes, leaning into uncomfortable situations and conversations is what really all people need to get more comfortable doing. So the whole theme of getting comfortable with the uncomfortable and having the dialogue and creating the discussion. I know Shaquilla shared in episode three about the whole dynamic of just ask questions to people who have different faiths and different beliefs and versus I don't want to go there. Let's get to know one another. Let's spend time and know thy neighbor. And Dr. Reed is very articulate with this and the data and the research and the DNA that makes each one of us up. And she mentioned that we're viewed to see things different than us from a safety perspective. We're born to be able to see differences, and that's okay. But we also need to, from a humanistic perspective, value one another's similarities. No matter where you are, I know there's been team-building exercises that I've been a part of, and I would encourage our listeners to think about. Put individuals together that are different generations, come from different educational backgrounds, different work experiences, different ethnicities, different parts of the world, and encourage them to see how long it takes to find something they're similar with. Usually that exercise takes a lot shorter than anyone in the room would think about because we're all so similar. We're all human. So love that, love those various perspectives. And thank you for leaning into that dialogue.
0: Well, and, you know, back to like, how do you get started? Like, I'm not working off of this, like, amazing database of insights, right? But I capitalize on random things. So for listeners, if you haven't seen, there's a Heineken commercial of all things where they do exactly what you're talking about. So they bring two people together and they have maybe four or five different scenarios of two people coming together and their job is to build something. But they start the commercial with understanding who they are, and all of them are anti, strong anti what the other person stands for. So it could be somebody who's transgender and somebody who is staunch. It's fake. So they show these interviews between the pairs. Then they build this thing together, and then they find out that they're diametrically opposed on very deep-rooted moral, ethic, you know, personal, religious issues, and yet they choose— to get to know each other because they had this experience that was building what they were building. And I think that goes to our mentality with 8451 and our strategy around DI and and a lot of what Janet stands for is how do you build the connection first? Because if you can build the connection and the rapport and the relationship, you can work through the other things. And you're more likely, as you said, to ask those questions of like, well, tell me why it's different. I've never really thought about it that way. So it's all about fostering dialogue, but it's starting with uh, getting to know each other better and spending the time understanding that the differences actually enhance the relationship, don't impede it. Yeah. I um,
1: experienced last year at a uh, All Pro Dads program, something that we're involved with nationally, a video. It was a Coca-Cola video. And they were showing individuals that are living, currently living in countries that quote unquote don't like the other country. And they showed them through this experience of a screen and they were touching and interacting and engaging with one another and dancing, and they didn't know, right? So they built that, and Coca-Cola has done this quite a bit in videos of showing differences. And as the viewer, you know it, and you go, wow, yeah, those two countries are – not allies, right? They're adversaries. And then to have this emotional experience with one another and family and engaging with those in the crowd and then the show, again, back to the point, let's lean into, let's get to know one another's similarities and bring out the best in all things and all people, right? And just engage. Are there aspects here that you have found remarkably difficult as you've dove into it? Or have you found just this openness because of the culture that you've created and the talent that you have and the leaders that you have?
0: You know, I don't know that our challenges are that unique from others. I mean, there's always going to be the challenge of the perspective that says it's a fixed pie. And so for elevation of folks who aren't represented, let's say, in levels, that means that people who are must lose, right? So We still live into that, and we're trying to recognize that our missteps along the way could be not recognizing that there is going to be a group that's not 100% supported by this. And so how do we make sure their voices are heard, too? So I think the majority still is at risk, right, in a DNI type strategy. So I think we're trying to make sure that we address that group. I also think probably the other challenge, at least with us, and I think, again, for listeners- The change is coming. The change is expected. We had some exposure to some Gen Z folks. And if, like, for example, we struggle with compensation visibility. And, like, when do you do that and how do you do it and what does that do organizationally? The reality is that's the expectation of everybody coming in the workforce. So whether you want to go there or not, you have to get there. So for me, there's some pacing, right, that I still have to do of it's not that we don't want to be transparent, but we got to build the capability to handle it and all of those things from an organizational perspective. And then what's the solve? Because lots of companies are trying to get to parity. How do you keep parity? I mean, those are the things that keep me up at night. It's like, let's just say I'm parity today. You know, you hear from Salesforce.com leaders, as soon as you do an acquisition, you're now out of parity. So you have to actually build the infrastructure in HR to not handle the one time, but the next time and the next time and the next time. And as market gets more competitive... And you hire somebody who might be a domain expert. Well, now you're out of equity with everybody else. And what happens if that's person's male? <laughs> so now I'm at inequity. So it's really thinking, you know, through that longer term strategy. So I think at times the organization wants to go faster. And the reality is there's humanness involved. There's people's perspectives involved. So I would say that's a challenge, too, is everybody wants you to go faster hmm. than what you're maybe capable of doing. Excellent, Beth.
1: So, Beth, as we wrap up today's episode, are there is are there one or two areas where you would like our listeners to really take time to think about and to reflect on for their own leadership and the benefit of those that they're leading?
0: Yeah, I would say this, whether you're a business leader or an HR leader, is we've become a 24-7 mass data ingestion culture, right? The most important thing for, I think, HR and business leaders is What's the handful of things that we're trying to do as a business? And what does that mean, the handful of things I need from you with clarity to be successful? I think too many people try to be too many things, get too much done, et cetera. And we're seeing the burnout and the activity of I'm always on. People need to be off to be strategic. People need to be off to be at their best. And so how do you prioritize the work whether it be HR or whether it be the business, that would be my one piece of wisdom. So go back, reflect in your car. What are the two or three things that you want to drive as a leader? And how do you get your team really rallied around that versus everything that they could possibly do? And then recognize them for that progress. Mm-hmm. I think that's the other thing is uh, this is a culture, especially the younger generation that's hitting the workforce, they're used to being praised on a pretty regular basis. How do you get to an easy way to thank people for what they're doing and making sure you're giving meaningful feedback and recognition so that they keep coming back to do the things that you want them to do. Excellent.
1: Excellent. Beth, thank you so much for joining us today in the studio. Thank you for your leadership. We certainly believe that this topic helps leaders further succeed in their relationships, work, community, and life and helping them reframe success in leadership. So we, on behalf of the Talent Magnet Institute, thank you so much for being here.
0: Thank you for inviting me. I have listened to many of your podcasts and I'm very humbled to be with that group of people. So thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. A toxic work culture can be costlier than you can imagine, but hard to identify. Go to talentmagnetinstitutepodcast.com slash toxic culture to learn seven signs that there's something you need to fix in your workplace.
1: The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is powered by Centennial, a talent strategy and executive search firm, and the Talent Magnet Institute. You can engage with us at Talent Magnet I on Twitter or Talent Magnet Institute on LinkedIn and Facebook. Please communicate by using hashtag Talent Magnet. Find us in your favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, and leave a review, as well as share with a colleague. You can also listen at talentmagnetpodcast.com. Our podcast studio is based in greater Cincinnati, Ohio. We are supported by our listeners, clients, and partners from all over the world. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is made possible by a great team that includes Janelle Spence and Christine Lewis of Centennial, Josh Chappelle and Adam Smith of Soundpress, Produced by Chris Madine of New Fidelity Studios and Audra Casino and Megan Doherty of One Stone Creative. Music written by DJ Corbett and Chris Madine. And myself, your host, Mike Sipple Jr. Thank you for joining us on the journey of developing leaders to succeed in relationships, work, community, and life, reframing success in leadership.